for uh, the musical practice. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the 106th Psalm. The 106th Psalm. This morning, we'll bring our study of the first, fourth, first, fourth book of the Psalter to a close. Psalm 106 is the final psalm in book four of the Psalms. And one of the things that we've seen as we've been going through the Psalms is how many different flavors, as it were, or styles, or tones, or notes, or emotions the Psalms represent. I know as a new believer, I thought all the Psalms did were just happy, happy, upbeat songs. And then in studying them, I learned that the majority of them are actually of lament. And the last few weeks, we've seen some celebratory Psalms, Psalms that celebrate God's goodness, this psalm that we're about to read does that, but it does it against the backdrop of a history of Israel's sin. The psalm is capped by a call to worship at the beginning and then a pr prayer and a praise at the end. But the overwhelming majority of Psalm 106 is a history, a litany, a list of Israel's sin after sin after sin. And so we are going to read that and then we're going to dive in. But if you would please stand, we're going to read... The 106th Psalm. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they came, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep, as through a desert. And he, so he saved them from the hand of the foe. And redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. And put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked. But he sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior. Who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. 
Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness, would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them into the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Lord God, we just pray now that as we look at this psalm, it's a challenging psalm. In some senses, a discouraging psalm, Lord, yet it is a call to worship you. Let us learn how we can worship you and glory in your steadfast love even as we review the sins of Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. Psalm 106 may seem like a bit of a downer. It's not a short psalm. But it is a psalm of praise to God. The title of this morning's message, Oh, Praise the Long-Suffering and Ever-Loving God. And, that, and that's the thing I want you to see. It's clearly a call to praise. It begins with a call to praise. It ends with a call to praise. And so I would suggest to you that those litany of sins that you see going for the overwhelming majority of the psalm, verses 6 to 46, are really like the black felt cloth that a jeweler, perhaps trying to sell an engagement ring, would put behind the ring to highlight its shimmer and gleam. There's a way in which a contrast highlights the beauty and the distinction of something better than if it were not there. And so while we're looking at Israel's sins, we're also looking to see highlighted the Lord's steadfast love. So I ultimately believe this is an encouraging psalm. And yet we will we'll see much of the people's sin. Before we begin, please turn in your Bibles, keep, keep your thumb in, in Psalm 106 to 1 Corinthians 10. Another challenge presented by this psalm is Israel's history is not our history. The, the, 
this writer of this psalm can identify corporately as part of the nation of Israel in a way that we cannot. He's owning up, in a sense, in a corporate solidarity of his people and what his people had done, therefore he is guilty of. And, and we believe that the Lord has a plan for Israel. We, we look forward to the restoration of Israel, not primarily a geopolitical restoration, but their repentance and faith in their Messiah. And yet this New Testament tells us what to do with passages like this. When we're recounting Israel's history and you think to yourself, well, that's great, but what does that mean to me? Look in 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read the first 13 verses. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now look at this. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And notice this again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come, therefore let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now isn't that amazing? Paul says two things that are just incredible. The first, these biblical records of Israel's history were written down just as much for the church's sake just as much for our sake as it was for Israel's sake. If you're ever tempted to think of the Old Testament as a book for Israel, Paul would tell you otherwise. But not only were they written for our sake, they took place for our sake. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. That, that is just stunning. As we go through this list of sin... In Psalm 106, and you wonder, why would the Lord let this happen? He caused this to happen. He let this happen to them so that we could learn something. They took place to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. So this is very relevant to us. And then the final warning at the end, verse 12, Therefore, let any of you who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The other warning is this. Do not, when we read through this psalm, think, man, those... Israelites were stupid. They were, but if what you mean is, I wouldn't have done that, I would have done differently. Oh, if I'd have been there, it would have been different. Then you need to take that warning of, of taking heed. If you think you stand, beware lest you fall. No temptations overtaking you except what is common to man, the next verse says. And what he's saying is all these temptations and all these trials and all these failings of the Israelites, they're the same things we do. And we'll see that. So now we're going to turn back to Psalm 106, knowing that these things were written for our instruction, knowing that these things happened to them for us. That's the blank. These things happened for us. Let us endeavor to make sure they did not happen for us in vain. So we're going to look now at the first five verses, a call, corporate call to praise and thanks to the Lord. A corporate call to praise and thanks to the Lord. 
And the psalm opens up in a cheerful note. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord forever, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. That, that word steadfast love is a major theme of this psalm. It's mentioned first here, then in verse 7. One of the sins of the fathers, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. And then at the end of the psalm, it's picked up again two more times. Verse 44. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So this is the theme. We're praising the Lord. We're praising Yahweh for the abundance of his steadfast love that endures forever. He is good. And we're going to look for that as we look at the litany of Israel's failures. The second thing we see here is that it is a corporate prayer of confession with a private application. See, God dealt with Israel corporately many times. So went the nation, so went the individuals, so went the king, so went the nation. One man's sin, such as Achan, was counted as sin for the entire nation. And so this man, whoever wrote this, is, is both praying for the nation and praying for himself. Look at verse 4. Remember me, O oh Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them, that I may look on the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. So this is an individual praying for the nation and himself. Now the context is the Babylonian captivity. That becomes very clear when you jump down to verse 47. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. No, they're not staying at Rich and Doris's house. They've been scattered into the nations, captured by Assyria and Babylon. And so I like to think of this psalm and its purpose is perhaps a way of instructing Israeli children who are growing up in Babylon and they're reading their Torah, and they're being trained, and they read about this land that God promised them. They're reading about this promised land, and they want to know, why are we here? What went wrong? Why are we in Babylon, being mocked and oppressed? And what this psalm does by going through a litany of Israel's history is it explains why that happened. It explains the captivity. It explains why they ended up where they ended up. And then it leads to a cry for deliverance. So, a corporate prayer of confession with a private application. That The major part of the psalm is confessing both his father's sins and the nation's sins. We see that clearly in verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. There's a couple of things to look at here. Oftentimes, we're going over sins is a very discouraging thing. It's frequently not encouraged. Oftentimes you'll hear, once the Lord's forgiven something, don't ever touch it again, don't ever go there again. There is some truth to that. The devil is, after all, the accuser of the brethren. And yet here we have an example of reviewing past sin. I would suggest to you that the way to tell if your focus on your own past sin is of God or not is what it causes you to do. Here, after focusing on his and his father's sins, he draws closer to the Lord. He praises the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. If your guilt, if you're thinking through what you've done, brings you closer to the cross, brings you closer to God, it's a good thing. And there can be a time and a place to look back at the Lord's deliverance, especially in light of your sin. 
If you're looking over your, your past sins causes you to lower your head in shame, to hide, to move further from God, that's not good. But there clearly, as this psalm indicates, is a time and a place to consider our failings in the past and God's righteous and loving response. And one of the reasons for that here, this point, is that confession of sin is an act of worship. Confession of sin is an act for worship. I, I referenced Achan earlier, but if you remember the story, Israel takes beginning battle of taking possession of the land at Jericho. They cross the Jordan, they march around Jericho. There's a mighty victory. And yet all the Israelites are told to take nothing from Jericho. It's to be devoted to the Lord. And Achan takes some gold, some silver, and some cloaks, and he buries it in his tent. And they lose their next battle because in God's eyes, Israel now is guilty of sin. So he will not bless Israel in battle. And so Joshua calls upon the Lord to, to want to know what happened. And the Lord tells them their sin in the camp. And they begin to set aside the tribes, singling them out. And finally, it's just Achan. And listen to what Joshua says to Achan in Joshua 7, 19 to 20. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. What Joshua is saying is that if Achan will confess his sin truly, in doing so, he will give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to his name. And the way that works is this. Confession, confess, the etymology works both in English and Greek, is to agree with someone, to say the same as someone. And when we sin, we disagree with God. When we sin, we say that we know better. We deserve it or whatever it might be. And when we confess, we are now siding with God against ourselves. And we're agreeing with him. We're saying you were right and we were wrong. And what you said was right. And what you did was right. And what we did was wrong. And in doing so, you are giving praise and glory to God. We need to confess sin as sin and not sugarcoat it. This psalm is very honest, brutally honest about Israel's sin. And it's a good thing to do when confessing your sin, just to call it what it is. It's a way to give worship to God. And he calls upon God for three things. To remember me, help me, and save me. And I want to focus on, on that first one, remember. You're going to see in this psalm as it unfolds that remembering and forgetting are a large part of what Israel did that was wrong. And so it's Notable to see that whereas he's going to confess how he and his fathers have done a lot of forgetting, he's calling upon the Lord to remember. In the context of God remembering, it's not that God forgot something, but it's a call for God to look upon something, to think of something, to, to consider him, to be thinking of him. And the great news is down at the end of the psalm, we hear that the Lord, in fact, does that. Verse 45, for their sake, he remembered his covenant. <clears throat> he remembered his covenant. And, and that's something that we've been highlighting in the last couple weeks, but probably even most notably last week, the importance of memory, the importance of remembering. Paul and Peter writing to encourage believers to remember things. Peter in 2 Peter saying, I write these things to stir you up by way of remembering. Psalm 103, David speaking truth to his soul. Don't forget, soul, the Lord's many benefits. There's a great danger in forgetting, and we're going to see that here. What I want you to see as we shift to looking at a catalog of Israel's sins, the Lord's faithfulness, is that emphasis on forgetting. All these sins, all these evil things that Israel did are rooted in not remembering. 
Look, look at verse um, 7. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. Verse 13. They soon forgot his works. Verse 21. They forgot God. And all of that forgetting leads to unbelief. Verse 24. Having no faith in your promise. Remembering is a big deal. Speaking truth to yourself, speaking truth to your brothers and sisters is a big deal because it helps us remember who God is. Remembering is a big deal. And this leads to sin, and sin equals unbelief. They're all sort of equated here. Israel's history is one of a failure to believe, a failure to remember, and a failure to obey, and they're all intertwined. We're to see that clearly as well, that sin is lived out unbelief. So let's dive in now to sins under Moses, verses 6 to 33. And there's seven different accounts listed of sins under Moses. The first, they did not consider or remember, and then an arrow means which led to rebellion. They did not consider or remember leading to rebellion. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. God had just delivered Israel from Egypt. They'd seen the ten plagues. They'd seen the preservation of the firstborn. They'd seen it be dark in all of Egypt and light in their section. And yet, when they got to the sea and Pharaoh's army was behind them, in Exodus 14, 11 to 12, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly they forget. How quickly you and I forget. The Lord works mightily, and the next time we feel insecure, we feel frightened, we can be so easily blaming God, grumbling. They didn't remember they didn't consider, and so they rebelled. And in all these encounters of sin, what we'll see is at least two things. What Israel did in the Lord's response, and sometimes there'll be a third piece. And so the Lord's response, amazingly, in the psalm about his steadfast love, verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deepest, through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of their foe and redeemed them by the power of the enemy. This, this is amazing. Think of how ungrateful these people are. Think of how recalcitrant and stiff-necked and stubborn and complaining and forgetful they are. The Lord would have been right in, in destroying them right then and there, and he doesn't. He saves them, he delivers them, he redeems them for his name's sake. Then, consequently, in verse 12, they believed his words, and they sang his praise. And so, I want, you to, I want you to look at this. A failure to think about what God has done, and a failure to remember what God has done, leads to rebellion, and is, by contrast of verse 12, unbelief. See how those things are equated? They weren't believing after God saved them, then they believed, which tells you they weren't believing previously. 
we, we can sort of reverse engineer into this a way to help build faith. You want, to, you want to grow your faith and not be unbelieving? Consider what the Lord has done. Remember his deeds. Don't rebel. Believe. Which is the main point we saw last week in Psalm 103. They're all intertwined. What you think about, what you meditate on, what you muse upon, what you trust and what you believe and then what you do. Second account. They forgot, they craved, and therefore they tested God. So he mightily delivers them through the Red Sea. And they watch all their enemies be destroyed. But verse 13, even though in verse 12 they had believed, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. By the way, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did not do. Even when he was hungry, he refused to put God to the test. And what he's referring to is an account in Numbers 11. The people are sick and tired of eating manna, and so they want some meat. So God sends them quail and a disease. So that's what they did. They forgot, they craved, and they tested God. God, in response, gave them their desire and it devoured them. This is frequently how God works. You know the expression, be careful for what you wish for, you just might get it. God works that way too. And you can think of the prodigal son. His undoing is his inheritance. God gave them what they desired and sent a devouring plague. Thirdly, they were jealous of their leaders. They were jealous of their leaders. When the men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And fire broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. This is when Korah had his rebellion. The people didn't want to deal with the one whom the Lord had appointed to lead. And what we're seeing is just time and time and time again, they rebel, they disbelieve. And in case you look at these disciplines by the Lord as somehow unloving and you think, I thought this is supposed to celebrate his steadfast love, remember, at any one of these, he would have been just in doing away with them. And according to Hebrews 12, he disciplines his children whom he loves. So we're to see the restraint in his discipline. We're to see the kindness in it, that he continues going on with them. Despite the fact that here they're jealous of their leaders. And that account is in number 16. This is the sin of the Pharisees who, according to Matthew 27, 18, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they delivered up Jesus. Fourthly, they forgot God their Savior and worshipped an image. This is the account of the golden calf. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot God. Moses goes up on the mountain. They've seen the mountain shake. They've seen the lightning and the fire. And yet, sometime in those 40 days, they come to Aaron and they say, we don't know what's happened to this man Moses. Make, make us gods to worship. And again, don't think we wouldn't do that. Corinthians has warned us already. Take, take heed lest you... Fall if you think you stand. They, they, they traded the glory of God, that, that phrase that Paul picks up in Romans 1. 
speaking about universal sinfulness. Paul takes this concept, this verse, in fact, and applies it to all of humanity. In Romans 1.23, the charge against mankind, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So don't think this doesn't speak about us. It does. So how did the Lord respond to that? Well, he prepared to utterly destroy them. That's what he announced to Moses. I'm going I'm to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to start over with you. Then, there's a but here, but Moses interceded for them and turned away his wrath. Moses stood in the gap and he pleaded for the people and the Lord relented. And we learn an important thing about God. that Here's a God who will listen to righteous intercession. Here's a God who, who can be pleaded with. And so we move on now to the next account. They disbelieved his promise grumbled and disobeyed. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. So this God who's done the ten plagues, this God who's part of the Red Sea, this God who entered into a covenant with them at Sinai, who's fed them with manna and with quail and water from a rock, this God brings them up to the edge of the land. And they send out the twelve spies. Ten were bad and two were good. And on the report of the 10 bad spies, the people are terrified. They don't want to take possession of the land. Here is this wonderful gift the Lord was going to give them, and they despised it. And they grumbled. They disbelieved his promise and grumbled and disobeyed. And as we heard when Pastor Daniel was preaching Psalm 95, as a result, the Lord swore that that generation would never enter his rest the Lord caused them all to die in the wilderness. And you're just getting the repetition here of people just not learning, the people not getting the lesson, getting the point. Next, the sixth, they were immoral and idolatrous at Peor. They were immoral and idolatrous at Peor. And you remember, Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, and Balaam cannot curse Israel, but he gives Balak some advice. If you can lead the people into sin, the Lord himself will judge them. And so Balak sends his women, his cult prostitutes, in down to the people of Israel, and there's a massive pagan orgy taking place in Peor. And the people are worshiping false gods, eating food for the dead, and the Lord caused a plague to break out among them. And then Phineas stands up. And here we get our second intercessor, our second interposer. And by spearing two of the most egregious people in this, uh, head of the tribe of Judah, he averted the Lord's wrath. And finally, the sins under Moses, they grumbled and provoked Moses at Meribah. And this is near insurrection. This is when they're once again thirsty and they so grumble and so complain that Moses overspeaks. He takes some of the glory from God, and as a result, he speaks in anger and was refused entrance into the land. Now, there's the seven catalogs of sins and God's response. And, and even though we do see discipline, we should be marveling at the Lord's long suffering, that he would put up with such a rebellious, such a stubborn, such an unteachable people, just like you and me. So turn over your insert now. We'll look at sins in the land. And here we kind of come up to the coup de grace, the pinnacle. 
Whereas before, the sin was listed in a verse or two and the Lord's response was listed in a verse or two. The complaint about the sins in the land is much bigger. The Lord's judgment, much bigger. And the Lord's steadfast love and mercy, much bigger. This is kind of the final explanation. Here's a history, if you will, of Israel's past. And if you're wondering why we're in Babylon, if you're wondering why we are being disciplined, it's because we and our fathers, this is the psalmist confessing this, are just as bad, if not worse, than those who came before us. So let's quickly look at this. They're progressive sins. When they did take possession of the land, what happened? First, they did not destroy and drive out all their enemies. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols and became a snare to them. So the Lord knew that if they didn't drive out all the pagan inhabitants, that they would ultimately be ensnared by them, which is exactly what happened. They, they didn't obey. Judges records that. They begin to intermarry and mix with the nations. And as a result, they now leave into idolatry and the worship of other gods. Well, the next step of that then is they start performing religious sacrifices for these other gods. And in doing so, they sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. And this is a great, great evil. The Lord's heart is broken by it. And again, lest we think that we don't do that today, yes, we do. The reason why an Israelite or a Canaanite might sacrifice their daughter to a demon is economic. These are fertility gods. And the thought is if you offer up your fertility, he'll, the God will make it rain. The God will make your crops grow. The God will give you more children. And is not the very reason why we kill our babies today, economics, first and foremost. We're no better off. We just do it in nice clinical rooms. We feel a lot better about ourselves. But economics driving this the demonic wisdom behind it has not changed. The spirit of the age has not changed. They sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. And consequently, this good, good land that the Lord had given them is polluted. And then verse 39 serves as a summary for Israel's history. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Now the ESV has that word, whore, strong word, I know. Now, it suggests to you that it's much like some words that I explained this to my son, Abner. Some words are like knives. You need to be old enough to know how to use them properly or else someone might get hurt. This is one of those words, but I'm glad the ESV chose to translate it that way instead of harlot. They both mean the same thing, except no one uses harlot anymore, and so it doesn't sound that bad. This is meant to sound ugly. This is meant to sound terrible. Because it is terrible. And in the right context, and in the right way, not used flippantly, not used as an insult to someone, it is the appropriate word. They became unclean and played the whore. And it's a summary of Israel's history. So, the Lord's final judgment then. First, he became filled with anger and disgust at his people. Verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, he abhorred his heritage. These people who he said earlier were like the apple of his eye. We looked upon with love. He now couldn't bear to look upon in disgust at their evil and their sin. And then he gave them into the hands of their enemies to rule them. They were supposed to have security. They were supposed to have prosperity because of their sin. Verse 41, he gave them to the hands of the nations, so those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. 
and he scattered them among the nations. First with Assyria coming in and taking the ten northern tribes, and then with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon taking Judah. And they're off the land. And so here's a summary then, a summary statement of God's judgment and action, God's relationship to Israel. Verse 39 is a summary of what Israel did. Here's a summary of the Lord in relationship to Israel in verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And that's Israel's history as a record of Israel sinning, of Israel being judged, of Israel crying out, of the Lord delivering them, of Israel sinning, of them being judged, of them crying out to God and him delivering them over and over and over and over and over, and they don't get it. And we don't get it because we are just like them. And yet we see God's steadfast love here. Thankfully, that's not the final word. Finally, we see the Lord's steadfast love and mercy. Amazingly. And remember, this this psalm starts with praising the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to see that after all of this provocation, after all of this repetition of unbelief and forgetfulness and rebellion and idolatry, Verse 44, nevertheless, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He he looked on them and he heard their cry. And this is a look of compassion. This is a, a look of pity a look of love. Earlier in verse 8, we saw that he saved them at the Red Sea for his name's sake. Here, for their sake, he remembered his covenant. This is the first, by the way, mention of God's covenant with Israel in the psalm. And he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So the reason the psalmist gives here, why did God not utterly destroy them in the nations? Why did God have compassion? Because he loved them. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, not even for his name's sake, for their sake, it is said here, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Is it any wonder why the psalmist begins this psalm to praise the Lord because his steadfast love endures forever? It can endure hundreds of years of Israel's faithless history and rebellion, and yet still in their discipline can look on them with love. And he caused them to be pitied by those who held them captive. So even in the captivity, rather than being sorely oppressed as they could be, there's, there's pity. You think of Daniel in Daniel 1.9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief, the eunuchs. Book of Jeremiah, which prophesies and promises the coming judgment and the terrible destruction of, of Jerusalem, spelled out, ends this way. The final paragraph of Jeremiah ends on this note, Jeremiah 52, 31 to 34. In the, 70, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, in the 12th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison, and he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. So even in judgment, the Lord is causing Israel to have some favor among their enemies. The Lord is dealing kindly with his people. He's not giving them the full cup of his wrath, but he's restraining it. He's restraining it. And then this sets up now the final prayer, the response to all this. As, as this 
Israelite is recounting their history. And what he's basically saying is we deserved everything we got. It is just of you to send us off the land. It is right of you to discipline us this way. In fact, we deserve far worse. He's just highlighted the Lord's love and kindness. We could have it worse off than we do. I'll just pause there. So often we want to think we have it worse than we deserve. You're not in exile in a foreign land in slavery and bondage. These people are, and they're saying, we deserve far worse. We deserve far worse. And this happens when you recount God's steadfast love, especially in light of our sins, which leads then to this cry of save us and gather us from the nations. Verse 47, save us, O Lord, gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. See, the the result of this rehearsal of sin I'm sure there's a humbling that takes place, but at the same time, as they think of God's faithfulness, as they think of his patience, they think of the never-endingness of his steadfast love, if he's that gracious and patient, then perhaps he'll just, Lord, save us, help. It emboldens the psalmist to call upon God. And that's the right response. By the way, on a happy note, once we get done with 2 Timothy, we're to come back to the Psalms, look at the first few verses of Psalm 107. This is a prayer God answered. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Where have I heard that before? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. Whereas Psalm 106 is exilic, 107 is post-exilic. The Lord heard, the Lord answered. They're back in the land. The arrangement of the Psalter is not accidental. This psalm ending with a cry, Oh Lord, gather us. Psalm 3, 107, he has gathered us. So we have that to look forward to in a few months. And ultimately, this, this salvation, this regathering, is that they might praise and glory in the Lord. And then that prayer brings the book of the fourth book of the Psalms to a close, now calling for, once again for everyone and everything. To praise the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. What I think is really interesting, earlier in verse 1, his steadfast love endures forever. Here, the praise of the Lord must correspond to his love. If his love lasts forever, then let's praise him forever. We've gone through some dark history of Israel, but the psalmist is not discouraged. He is not embittered. He is not depressed. He's rejoicing. Because even in the judgment and even in the history of their sin, he sees the Lord's faithfulness. He sees the Lord's goodness. He sees the Lord's patience, his long suffering. And so, yes, he's reminded of who they are, but he's also reminded of who he is. Which brings us, I think, to our application for this psalm in the box at the bottom. What do we make of this? What do we learn of this? There's a lot we could learn from this. We can learn that the temptations and the sins that were easy to commit for us, how unbelief, forgetfulness can lead to gross, gross sin. But I just want to leave you with this thought. The confession of our sins to the Lord should both humble us and cause us to be amazed at the extent of the Lord's steadfast love towards us. The confession of our sins to the Lord should both humble us and cause us to be amazed at the extent of the Lord's steadfast love towards us. And this should encourage us all the more to call upon him to save and deliver us. 
Has, has the Lord in the past forgiven you? Has the Lord in the past been gracious to you? Has the Lord in the past not given you what you deserve? Well, then call upon him today to, to do the same. And, and th- this whole psalm assumes that you're in a relationship with the Lord, assumes that you know the Lord. This is a psalm of his people and faithlessness. If you don't know God, if you don't know the Lord, if you've not come to trust in Jesus, please talk to me, talk to Pastor Daniel, talk to one of the elders afterwards. But for those of us who do know the Lord, don't, don't shy away from confession. It's a way to worship God. It will humble you, but it will leave you amazed at God's steadfast love. And it will encourage you to call upon him all the more. Now, we could no more read the end of this psalm and not sing. So we are going to sing. This psalm ends with, let all the people say amen and praise the Lord. So we're going to call the worship team up. And we will obey the command of scripture. We will bless his name. Please stand. Let's give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever.